In Acts chapter 2 is where we started our study. Of course, a big event happened in Acts chapter 2. What happened in Acts chapter 2? The church began. The church began. Okay. Now, some would argue the church began as soon as Jesus rose again from the grave. Uh, but the church began when Paul, Paul, Peter preached that along with the other apostles, that first gospel message in the Holy Spirit was given to those men to confirm the message that they were preaching, and they began to baptize people into Jesus Christ, and those people were added to the church. And how many people in Acts chapter 2 do we read were added to the church that day? 3,000. 3,000. That was an event, wasn't it? Wow. That's a lot. So what happened... And now we're going to kind of go back and we're going to hit that word conversion again. What happened with those people? When we say that, that they became Christians, we say, and we, so we've already said they became Christians and we said they were added to the church. We've said those two things. So we can say those two things happened with them, right? They became Christians and they were added to the church. Are all Christians added to the church? Yes. Yes. Is everybody in agreement? Yes. Okay. Now, there's a lot of groups out there that take on the name Christian, and we can get into a lot of doctrinal discussions about uh, which ones are following the gospel and following the doctrine that the apostles taught and and all of that. And we've, we've talked about in... Oh, my notes are gone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we've talked about the... The simplified, really, plan of salvation, uh, hearing the word, believing, confessing your need for salvation and your belief in Jesus Christ, repenting or turning your life around and changing and being baptized into Jesus. We've talked about those things. So um, there's a lot of groups out there that don't follow all of that. And, and we're not in this... 45 minutes this morning going to get in debating different doctrinal differences between different denominations. But when a person follows the word of God and responds to the gospel as it is taught in the Bible, they become a Christian. And when they become a Christian, they are added to the church. And that's very clear in multiple instances in the Bible. And Acts chapter 2 is one of the, the real obvious ones where it says that 3,000 souls were were baptized and they were added to the church that day. And we get that glimpse of, okay, they're added to the church. They weren't added to the local congregation per se. They were added to the kingdom of God. Okay? All agreement on that? Okay. All right. So Acts chapter 2, we have people who become Christians and they're added to the church. What changed for those people? What do we know about them before they were baptized? And they could have been religious because yeah, be some of them were, some of them were most likely devout Jews. Yeah. So they're probably very religious. Some of them were probably very godly people. Okay. So when we say worldly, it depends on your definition of worldly, right? Mm -hmm. What did you say, Mary? Well, they were without the blood of Christ. They were th they were lost. Yeah. That's what we know about them. We don't know if they were Jews. We, we assume that there were no Gentiles there because we don't really have any record of Gentiles coming into the church. 
until God sent Peter to Cornelius, right? So we assume that there were no Gentiles prior to Cornelius because that's our first record of it. And God did this miraculous vision with Peter to let Peter know that it was okay. So, and it's a, it's an edu, it's it's more than an assumption. It's it, there is an education and strong evidence that that Cornelius was the first Gentile convert, right? So we're going to say that these were Jewish people. We don't know if they were all religious and godly and follow the Jewish religion. We don't know their background. Some of them could have been, you know, street bums and hoodlums and thieves like the ones that were crucified on the cross with Jesus. We, we don't know their individual backgrounds. But what we do know is that they were lost. They were not in Jesus Christ and had not been covered by the blood of Christ prior to this event. And after this event, they were. Right? Yeah. Those who did it sincerely. Yeah. Okay. And we, I mean, this is a pretty significant event in human history. Um, there was a whole lot of, a whole lot of emotion and the Holy Spirit miraculously intervening and acting in this event. And so we have 3,000 souls who went from being lost for eternity to having salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you to make some assumptions. And making assumptions is a dangerous thing to do when we're talking about studying the Scriptures, okay? This is not about making assumptions about doctrine. This is about, what do you think happened with those people? How do you think their lives changed? Because we have been talking about conversion, and conversion means what? Change. How do you think they changed? Other than being from lost to saved, now, what did they know about the new law at yes. this point, right? Yeah. That's right. I mean, Paul's letters hadn't been written. All they had was the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, what was he in reference to the old law? How, well, how did Jesus define himself in relation to the law of Moses? The fulfillment of the old law, not the abolishment, not the destruction, but the fulfillment. So, yes, there is a change in that, Barbara, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, there actually is no change in that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. All the things that God was teaching the people under the old law that he wanted them to do, the way that he wanted them to revere and worship him, the way he wanted them to serve and take care of one another, those are all the same things that he, he, he still asks of us and expects of us today. So when did the start, stuff start changing as far as eating the unclean or not working on the Sabbath? When did all that start changing? It never has. You don't, you don't go through the law of Moses and follow it on a daily basis? <laughs> did, did sacrifice go away under the new law? Seemingly. No, Jesus is the sacrifice. Okay, I'm going to go to Jamie. What was that, Jamie? Jesus is the sacrifice. Yeah, there's still sacrifice under the new law, but we don't have to do imperfect animal sacrifices anymore because there's been a perfect man who has, his blood has been shed. So sacrifice and the shedding of blood still applies under the new covenant. Okay. If we think about if we think about the Ten Commandments, because that's one of those things that we really get caught up on, and you, you referenced 
working on the Sabbath and things like that, okay? The Ten Commandments were given as part of the Old Covenant, right? We're actually getting a little bit off track, but this is good. This is really good, okay? So the Ten Commandments were given as part of the, the Mosaic Law. And it's they're kind of like a, a subset of ten really basic do these commandments that, you know, the 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 Israelites got really bogged down with making a whole bunch of other laws around all the cleanliness and clothing and work requirements and sacrifice and feasts and, and God gave them some specific instructions and then they took it to the 90th degree. But there was there's a subset of basic things that God was trying to teach. And in the first few of the Ten Commandments, God was trying to teach the, I think it's the first four, basically. God was trying to teach the Israelites what in the first four of the Ten Commandments? The love of Him. The love and worship and respect and reverence for Him. It was all focused on God. You shall know their gods before me. You do not take my name in vain. You do not have any graven images or idols. And you shall keep the Sabbath. Right? Now, Jesus, when He was challenged, and His disciples were out there picking grains of uh, or picking heads of grain and eating it on the Sabbath, and and he was challenged, and the the Jewish leadership kind of what are you? They're working, they're picking food. Oh my goodness, what are you doing? What was his response about man on the Sabbath? Do you remember? Yeah. Was man made for the Sabbath? Or the Sabbath made for man. Yeah. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Okay, the Sabbath was given as a commandment, but it was a commandment for the betterment, the help, the aid of man. So Sabbath was in it, the the Sabbath or the Sabbath rest was given from God to man as a purpose for man to do what? Rest. To get rest, because otherwise, what do we often do? Huh? We never stop, do we, Mary? Have you seen Don do that at any point, Kathy, recently? Uh, well, that's why he's in bed right now. <laughs> because he overdid it. James is a school administrator. Did you ever overwork? <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine, sir. I can only imagine. We work and we work and we work and we see all these things that need done. And, we, and especially those of us who have developed a passion for loving God and serving others. And so we want to keep doing because we want to make sure that those things don't fall through the cracks and people are taken care of. And we just see all these responsibilities and we just keep going and we keep going. And then there's the drive to accumulate and, and develop wealth and retirement and, and all of those things that drives us to do and do and do and go and go and go too. And God said, I need you to slow down every once in a while. This is not healthy for you physically. And it's not healthy for you spiritually because if this is what you're always doing and focused on, you're never going to get focused on the things that are eternal. And so he established the Sabbath rest for man so that man could pull back, slow down, think about the things that are eternal, focus on God, get a little rest in his body and let his body recharge. And so the question is, is that instruction still there for us today? Do you think God still wants us to do that? Okay. Now, there are debates about when it should be done. Should it be done on the seventh day? Should it be done on the first day? Obviously, under the old law, 
under the Mosaic law, they did it on the seventh day. How, and, and people will get caught up about, well, Sabbath means seventh. No, it doesn't. Sabbath actually is talking about a sabbatical rest, not seventh. Okay? The, the whole root word for Sabbath is from sabbatical. All right? And I need to go back to the question we had two weeks ago, by the way. Don't let me forget that before we close out today. Um, but it's about taking a sabbatical one day a week. Not a sabbatical for three months for the year or something, which there are times when people need to do that too. But um, this is about taking one day a week, setting aside, slowing down. It doesn't mean that you sit in the easy chair and do nothing. It doesn't mean you stay in bed all day necessarily, though that might be what you need to do, depending on where you are. Been there, done that, last Sunday. So, because guess what I did? I overdid it. Yeah, guess where I'm going to be this afternoon? I'm going to be taking a little bit of a Sabbath rest this afternoon because I overdid it last night. Okay, I'm doing okay. I'm not. My heart's not acting up. Depend, after I get finished doing that big coffee right there, though, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Usually, this is filled with liquid IV, the the mineral vitamin water stuff, salt water. But today it's coffee. So. <laughs> So the Sabbath rest is still something that God expects of us. So under the old law, God was giving us all these commandments, the sacrificing of animals, the feasts for the memorials, uh, all these different things that were very physical acts. And the Sabbath rest was one that it was a specified time in the week. And the Jews had these, they they were very locked in and focused on, here's my list of rules. And, And this was good for them to have this list of rules. Uh, they were very educated people, but mankind was relatively, and we still are, relatively young. And they were still learning how to interact with God and what God expected. And so God gave them a list of rules to help them grow into his expectations. But those list of rules were all about physical things that you did during the day. The, I mean, again, the cleanliness. It was about, it was very focused on physical cleanliness. Well, they also needed health instructions. They didn't have the science and technology and medicine and knowledge of the human body that we have today. And so God helped them grow through that by imparting knowledge to them and teaching them how to take care of themselves. But it also set a tone for how to become spiritually pure and keep yourself clean spiritually. So all of that was about growing from the physical to the spiritual. And so the sabbatical rest is the same. It's about growing from not only slowing your body down, but slowing your mind and your activity down so that you can focus on the things that are truly eternally important, including the worship of God. And sabbatical rest still exists. And so on Sundays, because the church met on the first day of the week, is our example, instead of having it on the seventh day, but we still take as much as we are able, though we sure get a lot of other things piled on in Sundays a lot of times, right? But on Sundays, was that David? Oh, okay. On Sundays, we do take a day that we come to church. In general, as Christians, we slow down. A lot of families will get together and have a meal together. We sit around and watch football. The football players are obviously not taking a sabbatical rest on Sundays. Well, we we can get on to them about it. And Dad says the spiritual nap is definitely part of it. What's that? A spiritual nap on Sunday afternoon. A spiritual nap. Now define spiritual nap. 
scriptural net. A scriptural net. Okay, okay. Scriptural net's what I meant. Okay. So what what if what if you're in the medical profession and you have to work on Sundays? How could you possibly be right with God? Huh? You find another time for your sabbatical rest and you focus on God, give Him His due, show Him His worth by worshiping Him, focusing on Him, studying His Word, praying, and slowing down for the day. Okay? What if you work seven days a week in a job? That happens for people. Some people are in that long term. Some people have that in spurts, right? We manage our way through those events. But there is a time to pull back for our own spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical health. God has set that example for us. He's told us we need to do it, and, and we need to do it. Um, there is not under the, new, under the new covenant with Christ, He is, again, remember the fulfillment, so the Sabbath rest didn't go away, but the way those laws are imparted to us, we have more freedom in Christ to do and manage and not just take this checklist and hang it on the wall over here and go, Saturday, this is what we're doing. Check the box. Okay? And maybe under our new covenant with our, with our allowances of freedom that we have in Christ, we are actually able to manage our schedules and our work and our family requirements if we make that Sabbath rest a... a focus and a priority for ourselves, fit it in in a place and time in a way that it's much more meaningful than it would be if we just had to drop everything immediately and do it because, oh, it's Saturday. You know, and my mind's never shut off because I had all this stuff that I just had to immediately stop doing that was undone, Mm -hmm. and and I'm worried about if I'm going to get it finished now, but now I can plan it and put it in there and make it a priority. And that's what we should be doing with our Sabbath rest. And so there was all these kind of changes. So when we talk about conversion, there was a big change for the for these. So there ended up being a great question about conversion because life changed for them under the new covenant. But none of the things that God had told them were good for them that he wanted them to do ever went away. Sacrifice didn't go away. God just gave Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Somewhere in the New Testament, I don't have my regular Bible with me, but somewhere all nine of the commandments are repeated in the New Testament, except the Sabbath. If anybody has that, if I can find that, then... I'll, I'll bring it next week. I'll okay. I, and and I, I have a recollection of that as well, but, uh, but I'm not sure where it is. Okay. So... Um, Again, there's Jesus. I, I want to emphasize Jesus is the fulfillment of the old law. So nothing that God taught us about worship. Now the methods, in some senses, have changed, but what He wanted us to do in worship, and praise, and service, and love, none of that, none of that, and that's the that's the basis of all of it, right? None of that, none of that has gone away under the under the new law under the new covenant. But the how, the, the, I, I hesitate to say, but I think Paul actually referenced it at one point, the burden of the 
the way the law was structured um, under the old law has been fulfilled and there's freedom in how we fulfill that as long as the focus continues to be on loving God and being obedient to His desire and His will. Okay? Loving Him and freedom in Christ doesn't mean, oh, I can just go do whatever I want, when I want, the way I want. It means you still study the Word to see how God wants you to do it and what He wants you to do. So, there was a conversion here, but the idea was still, Barbara, that the people were godly, that they loved God, that they stayed in the Word, that they worked together, that they cared for one another and took care of one another. And um, and so, none, none of that went away. And of course, as we get to the commandments that followed that had to do with how you treat other people. Honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery, all, none of those, I mean, all that still applies. I don't think anyone will ever argue that, right? So, all right, so the, the first converts in, in Acts, they went through a change because their life, I mean, their life changed from the strict legalistic, here's my checklist of rules under Judaism, to this is all about worshiping God, showing Him value, and loving and caring for one another. And so uh, there was there was a change in how they had to begin to think more critically about what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, Acts chapter eight. In Acts chapter eight, we we that whole chapter begins with uh, talking about. Saul, who is persecuting the church, and then we get to the point where Philip has gone to Samaria and he's preached the word. Um, and uh, there were people in Samaria who responded and became Christians. Now, the Samaritans were not Jews, right? Well, they were part. Well, they, they weren't Jews because Jews were, by definition, at this point in time, the, the members of the southern kingdom, Judea. Oh. And so the Samaritans were members of, citizens of the northern kingdom, which had become, which had previously been called Israel when they split, and then had become, had become known as Samaria because Samaria was the prominent city in, in the area, and so they had become known as Samaritans. Um, were they Gentiles? Yes. Hmm? I got a, I don't think so. I got a yes, and I got something else. They were, you're either Jew or you're Gentile. So they had to be Gentile. They weren't Jews. Hmm. Just two people in the world. Hmm. They, were the, they were from the Israel, which were Jews. So we have a record of this happening, right? Okay. So we have the record of this happening prior to Cornelius' conversion and Peter going to Cornelius, where we believe Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. We have these Samaritans who were not from the tribe of Judea nor members of Judea the kingdom. They were from the northern kingdom. They were descendants of whom? Well, they, they were, they were Israelites. Originally so they were from, so, so Jacob had 12 sons, right? right. 
Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, right? Oh, you're a There's a song. Whatever works in that case, you nailed it. I do that just for fun. I can't remember many things anymore, but that I can remember. Hey, hey, take that. So there were 12 sons of Jacob. And, of course, Joseph, you had the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh because Joseph's inheritance was split up. And then Levi was set aside to be, his descendants were to, of course, the ones from Aaron under the tribe of Levi were in the priesthood and all the rest of them served in the temple in various capacities and in religious service. They were the... They were the, the office staff and the, the music worship leaders and the, the preachers and, and all of that stuff, okay? And they, they were herding the animals up there to get slaughtered, and, and I mean, it, it was on and on and on and on. But when the nation split after Solomon, when Solomon's sons got into a battle over who was going to be king and then other people got involved, and the nation split, you had the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and a few other mixtures in there that formed the southern kingdom. And pretty much everyone else, with some mixtures, because people had interspersed, you know, pretty much all the rest of the tribes were in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, under the... Uh, under the uh, rule and direction of Rehoboam, and then subsequent kings, some of, many of which who were not faithful to God, but a few here and there were, did a better job of staying faithful to God than the Northern Kingdom did. The Northern Kingdom's history, when you go through and you look at and you look, read First and, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, was just a a, a, a series of Kings who did evil, did what was right in their own eyes and did evil in the sight of God and caused the people to sin and, and blah, 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 and the, the ways of, of Jeroboam and so forth. And, and it's just bell I mean, worship, marrying, marrying uh, into other countries' leadership and bringing their gods into it. And it was just on and on and on and on. It was really bad. And so... As they intermarried with all these other kingdoms and brought all of this other worship in there, they became um, a very, I, it, it was racial, it was cultural, it was tribal, it was, the tribal is probably the best way to put it, barriers that came up. And there was a lot of hatred between the southern kingdom who were called Jews, even though they all were not from the tribe of Judah. And those who were in the northern kingdom, who became known as Samaritans eventually. They were still descendants of Jacob. They were still from that whole lineage that came just a few generations before Jacob out of Abraham where that covenant was laid. Okay? So, there's some discussion about Mary, you made a statement that I, I agree with. They're either Jew or they're Gentile. But the Samaritans actually kind of fell into this kind of gray area almost because they were still descendants of Jacob, even though they messed it up a whole bunch. 
okay? And so we have Samaritans who are actually accepting the gospel prior to, prior to Cornelius. They were still under, they were still Abraham's descendants. Okay, so they were still under that familial covenant that God had made with Abraham. They were not fully on the outside uh, like those who were not from, from Abraham's line. Does that make sense? If you look at the woman at the well, Jesus stays there, teaches her, mm-hmm. and she says, well, you know, the Jews yes. say we need to worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. And so they, they were people that worshipped, but he gives her the whole, one day you will worship in spirit and truth. Yes, yeah, great, great, great example, great point. So they were not Jewish, they were Israelites. Um, and they and some of them did become Christians prior to Cornelius, assuming that Luke's recordings here from Acts chapter eight to Acts chapter ten are chronological. Okay, because in the Bible that's not always the case, right? So, um, and then of course we have the uh, the Ethiopian who becomes a Christian. Philip had been to Samaria. He's leaving. He's on his way. He encounters this Ethiopian who is reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip runs up, led by the Spirit. He asks him what he's reading. He says, well, I'm reading this, but I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so Philip begins to explain to him, right from where he is and where he's reading, Begins to talk to him about the prophecies, about the coming of Christ, to lead you right through the story of Christ, and the Ethiopian responds how? I want to be a Christian. I don't want to go to hell. I want eternal life. I'll live my life right. Was this Ethiopian a Gentile or a Jew? It's a Gentile, isn't it? Why do you assume a Gentile? Just because of where, what nation they lived in? Well, uh, 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 Dan. Okay, so Ethiopian denotes what country he came from, not his lineage. Okay? I'm an American. Yeah. I was born and raised here. But if I trace my lineage back, do you think all of my ancestors come from America? Uh, Well, as far as I can tell, none of them did. (laughs) You know, family stories tell me one thing, but everything else is proving out to be something completely different. Well, with him, I always wonder, because why is he reading the scriptures? Mm -hmm. So most, most biblical scholars, including Jewish scholars who are looking at the New Testament, uh, will give a lot of historical reasons why, why we would believe that this Ethiopian was a man who served in the government in Ethiopia, uh, worked in the Queen's Treasury there in some way. But just the fact that he was in Ethiopia does not change the fact that he was from Jewish lineage. Okay? But Jews had scattered, I mean, not near as much as they will after persecution starts, but Jews have scattered all over the world at this point, just like any other peoples do. Okay, so just, the, just and this is where I, this is another one of those little things where I say we have to be careful about making assumptions. Well, this is not necessarily a doctrinal issue, but if we just start assuming that because he's from Ethiopia that he's not a Jew, 
That's a very false assumption to make. Okay? All right. Um, he responds to the gospel. The best of our knowledge, he had very little teaching that day. He had access to Old Testament scriptures that he had been reading at some level. We don't, we don't know how long he had been studying them. We don't know a lot about his background or anything. But he did respond to the gospel that day. And as was the response in Acts chapter 2, as was the response of the, the Samaritans in early Acts chapter 8, what was the, the Ethiopian's response? Immediate. It was immediate, and it was to do what, Mary? Be baptized. Yeah, he to be baptized. He wanted to follow through on his understanding of Scripture and his desire to please God and, and live in Christ by being obedient to the gospel. And so as he obviously confessed his belief, he requested Philip to baptize him. And, and it was not a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Specifically in this instance, we know that because what are we told in Acts chapter 8 that led him to ask, why can't I do it right here, right now? See, there's water. There's water. <laughs> Let's do this. Yes, absolutely. And so he responded in baptism. That's one that we really know very little about him afterwards other than... Um, when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And the English translations, and we start putting punctuation and things like that in here, but it appears that last statement in verse uh, 39 there, and he went on his way rejoicing, refers to the Ethiopian, not to Philip. Okay? Um and then Philip went on and continued to preach in other cities and continued to, to share the gospel. Uh, Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius. We're getting really low on time uh, right now. Um, we reference Cornelius multiple times. His family, we reference them multiple times here. We have a, Cornelius was a good man. Okay, so when I asked you in Acts chapter 2 to tell me what we knew about the people before, all we knew is that they were not in Christ and they were lost, right? We know a little bit about Cornelius before he became Christian. He was seeking the truth. He was a good man. He gave of his, his resources to help other people. Uh, he was praying and asking for someone to lead him to the truth. Uh, and this is a man who wanted to be right with God. This is a man who wanted to... Uh, I had a conversation with Ryan McDonald this week. And... He, he had had a challenge with a co-worker and, and Ryan had made the comment about that he tries to live his life where his conduct is above reproach. Not that he doesn't make mistakes, but he tries to live it in such a way that the things that he does cannot be called into question. That his character is obvious in his actions and choices and words and the things that the actions that he takes are good and wholesome and caring and loving and serving and, and that his conduct is uh, above reproach. And it appears as we look at this description of Cornelius that this was a man who wanted to be that way as well. And he had God's attention. And he was praying for 
a God to lead him to the truth. Okay. Now, we can get into discussions here, and this is not a prayer class. We can get into discussions about, does God hear the prayer of a, of a sinner or a lost person, a non-Christian? Um, what divides us and separates us from God and hides, hides our face, his face from us and hinders him from hearing our prayers? What, what builds a block between us and God? Sin. Okay. Obviously, with the story of Cornelius, we learn very quickly that a person who is seeking the truth, even if they are not yet saved, if their desire and their heart is right before God and their desire is to know the truth, God wants to answer that prayer and he hears those prayers, right? Yeah. And with Cornelius, that is a very obvious, here's your example. So it's, it's not a simple matter of lost or saved Christian or non-Christian, but what is the desire, the purpose of the prayers? What's the desire of the heart? Um, what's the, the and I'm not, sorry, not, not necessarily the character of the person, but, uh, but Cornelius is seeking the truth. In this specific, in this specific story, and Ron taught this class, um, we're talking about a man now that there would have been much debate, not like the Samaritans even, but a man where there would have been much debate about whether or not he could come into the family of God. Okay? There didn't seem to be a lot of debate about the Samaritans. They were still acknowledged that they were descendants of Abraham. Cornelius was not a descendant of Abraham. He didn't come from one of Jacob's sons. He was a Roman. He had come from another country. Maybe Europe, maybe maybe Italy itself. I mean, we, I don't know where he was. He had come from somewhere else, not a descendant of Abraham. He wants to have salvation. He wants to know the truth. I'm sure at this point he's heard all about all this this turmoil that's gone gone on and the the crucifixion and the stories of resurrection. Word would have been getting around. Uh, I mean, the world had literally been turned not literally the the world had figuratively been turned upside down with the events and stories and clamor and riots and, and all that had happened. And, and so to make sure that everyone is on board with this, God sends this vision to Peter with a sheet and the unclean animals to talk about those things that I have now cleansed to make Peter understand that these rules under the old law were all about your physical, when it comes to cleanliness, were all about your physical health, but I wanted you to learn about what it meant to be spirit, spiritually pure, and that's what Jesus is doing for us now. So this was a, this was a big conversion point for Peter. There, that was maybe the biggest conversion in this whole story, because Cornelius was converted like others had been converted, but this was a big conversion for Peter and the Jewish Christians. That they had to change their mindset now about who is this wonderful gift of grace for? It's for everyone. So maybe, maybe this, including the apostle Paul himself, maybe this is the biggest conversion story in the whole, the whole book. Because it, the church really, the world changed as much as it did on Acts chapter two because it, it got. Salvation was opened up to everyone in this, this event. And of course, Peter goes there and other Jews go with him and they see the Holy Spirit poured out on Cornelius and his family prior to them becoming Christians. 
so that they would know that they had God's blessing and fulfilling in doing this. And that what Peter was doing and bringing them there was approved and sanctioned by and blessed by God. And of course, Cornelius responded, but who else responded? Yeah, his whole house, his whole household, which would have given writings of the time would have included his servants, their families, everyone who lived in his household. And then when we go on into the other chapters, when we look at in 16 and 19, the stories of Lydia, the story of the, the jailer, their whole families. When when the family leader responded, the whole family responded in time. And so we, we have those stories. It's all about conversion. It's all about the change that takes place. And in each and every story, we and we, we kind of we got spent a lot of time on old law, new law today. In every one of these conversion stories that we looked at, what is the active response of everyone who wants to become a Christian and have the, the grace of God in part of their life? So out of these groups that don't do that, dodge acts. <laughs> so when Lisa joined the Air Force, we'd been married two years and she joined the Air Force. Uh, I had not been attending church for uh, the first couple of years of our marriage. Young man had kind of ventured away. And when she took off and went to basic training and then went to her long technical training, we spent about a year and a half apart. And uh, so I started, first of all, started playing in a, like a church intramural basketball league, but that took me to a lot of different denominations. And I started asking questions and studying with preachers and teachers from all these churches in the Bossier City area. Well, we, we would go around and I'd go, I'd, I'd go to their church services and worship with them and was, and was seeking to understand how how and why they believed the things that they did, and, and evaluating my own beliefs in the process. And there are, there are a lot of things in the Bible, uh, and some of you would probably disagree with me on, on some of those, but there's a lot of things in the Bible where I can understand how someone can look at it and go, well, I, I think it's this, and it's different from what I think. There, there are several of those. I cannot understand with all of the examples and all of the cl very clear English translations as well as easy study of going back and looking at some of the Greek words in the New Testament. Understand how someone can deny that baptism is an immersion in water that is an act that not culminates but is the pinnacle of a person entering Jesus Christ being clothed in Him and receiving the grace of God and forgiveness. It, to me, it, it's very clear. And we can go back through and we can look at, at passages like Mark 16, 16 and, and Matthew chapter 28 and, and other places. We can go to 1 Peter and look at 1 Peter and, and look at, at passage after passage after passage. But it seems to be so clear. Um, but I... I I've studied with many, and, and I still cannot to this day tell you how someone can can honestly study and deny that one. So, But that is not the entire gospel. That is a piece of it, and that is, that is a part of it. 
a part of our response of conversion because equal to baptism are repentance, being willing to confess our belief and our need for a Savior. Because if we do not change and if we are not willing to change, baptism means nothing. It's just getting wet. Okay, so it's not just a matter of being immersed. It's it's all of this spiritual response as well. We need to get on in there. Thank you.